Hello, and welcome to the Pay No Attention podcast. Apologies for the lack of episodes recently. Obviously, the virus worldwide has caused a lot of things to stall, including this podcast, but we should be back to regular episodes soon. Today, I'll be interviewing Christopher Ruz, fantasy author and a friend of mine. His book, The Ragged Blade, is available now. Links are in the description. Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Thanks very much for joining me today, Christopher. No problem at all. Thanks for having me on. So my first question, uh, which is the obvious uh, author's question, I think, is where do you start your stories from? What's the first sort of seed of, an, of a thought that turns into a story for you? I usually begin stories with a setting. Uh, I know that's not the typical way of doing it, but I'm driven by big grand images, and that's usually related to setting or conflict. Um, so... Sometimes it's from inspired by video games, sometimes by books I'm reading, sometimes film, or, you know, those weird flashes of inspiration where two ideas collide. And then I'm trying to find a character or a conflict that will help us actually illuminate and lead up to this really cool situation or um, landscape that's stuck in my mind. So that was... Yeah, so that that's how I began my, um, my debut fantasy, The Ragged Blade, with images of lone travelers trekking across vast deserts. It's how I've begun a recent project, um, a fantasy project, which is entirely spawned from a single image uh, stolen from the closing frames of an anime and so on. And then I'll try and find some way of bringing that image to life. That's really interesting, starting from um, setting or a specific scene. Do, do you have that really like locked down in your head before you start then? A lot of the time I do and... Like the imagery of it. Yeah. The imagery is usually locked down early and then I have to try and find a way to reach that particular point. It depends on what the image is. Sometimes it's a setting that is pervasive and I immediately know that this setting is full of conflict and tension. I just need to find the story inside that setting. Other times it's an image that I need to build towards over several chapters or several hundred thousand words. Uh, But... Having that image in my head is what actually fuels me to keep going towards that point. Right. And so what comes after that setting? Would it normally be character or would you try and configure a plot that would end up at that scene? Character usually comes next. So examining that setting, examining that very weird situation and trying to figure out who in this world is going to be having a hard time or who in this world is going to be interesting to follow. Zooming in on them and then trying to find out their likes, their dislikes, their personal motivations, the things they fear, the things they love and want to fight to protect and so on. And once I have an interesting character in the interesting situation, then their their plot sort of starts to spin out in front of me as I can see it all interacting. Very interesting. So when you have this, um, this visual of this scene, I'm imagining it like a visual, like a cinematic panel or something like that. Um, and and this uh, setting established in your mind 
do you have a good idea a good feeling of where in the story that would be or do you shuffle it around and um you know try and fit it best in the middle or the climactic ending or even at the beginning yeah i have no idea where it fits i have to figure that out as i go along sometimes it's by test writing out uh certain scenes and seeing whether it actually feels like a climax or a good place to begin or a good turning point in the middle of the story um, but very, very rarely do I actually have a clear idea of where that image or scene is going to fit into the narrative. And I have written you know, entire books worth of content trying to figure out where a scene fits, and I've reached that scene finally and realized that that was actually supposed to be the beginning um, or the middle and scrapped everything that came before. So in that sense, I suppose I'm a bit more of a discovery writer. Once I actually have that scene in mind, I have to pour the words into it to figure out how I'm going to reach it and how best to actually pull it off. Right. That's actually what I was going to go on to asking you next, actually. Um, but that's really interesting about uh, that n not knowing, knowing that that scene exists in the story, but not knowing exactly where in the, in the story it's going to end up is really interesting. I, I like thinking about the idea that um, it's interesting to me to think about the idea that, you know, when you start with a blank page, you have just this infinite set of storylines and you're slowly closing them off as you're making decisions about where the story's going to go. Yeah, that's often the way it happens. Um, I, I, I fit very um, right into the middle of that sort of plot versus pantser divide. It depends on what stage the story is in. It depends on where the characters are in my head at the time. So I'll use whatever method or trick I need to figure out the next stage. Um, so sometimes I do have to just let the story roll on and let it expand in a freeform manner. And other times, yeah, the, the image is there and I can see a very clear structure sitting in front of me. So you're not a heavy outliner? Um, I've actually become a more heavy outliner the longer I've been writing. So my early pieces were all discovery writing. And now, as I said, I'm, I'm pretty much 50-50. So um, a project that I'm working on at the moment, I won't go into like massive detail because there's no context behind it, but it began with an image, um, which I knew I wanted to build towards. I played around for about 40,000 words with different scenes and conflicts and characters. And once I had them all in place, um, I sort of zoomed out and looked at everything I had and I realized that what I'd written was mostly junk, but because I had put the words down, I could now see that there was a character there who was quite interesting and there was a way to tell her story if I followed a particular route. So now that I had all that in place, I've actually gone back and outlined that entire project almost scene by scene, start to finish. But I wouldn't have seen the shape of that plot and I wouldn't have been able to follow the plotting process if I hadn't pumped, I said, about 40,000 words into it uh, initially in a pure discovery writing sort of method. Right. So it's almost like two writing projects back to back. The first way you're discovering the, the bones of the story and then the second way you're really putting the flash onto it. Yeah, that is one way of describing it. And it as far as I know, that's not actually that uncommon of a way of doing it. Uh, I know a lot of discovery writers will do an entire book and then step back and they'll start to work out a structure and they'll very, very carefully plot the next rewrite, um, even if the second rewrite has almost nothing in common with the first. So I prefer to think of it as the difference between 
sketching and painting. You need to throw down that really messy sketch and you need to let lines evolve in certain directions and indicate certain forms before you actually realize what a final painting might look like. Right, yeah. Um, for my own writing, I tend to find that uh, my best work, at least what I think is my best work, comes out in the edit and there's a lot of uh, junk I need to sort through before that. Um, do you find that, uh, do you have to do a lot of editing or do you have a fairly clean first draft? I, know, I do a ton of editing. Um, I, I generally don't trust anyone who says their first drafts turn out good because I've never been able to do that myself. Uh, editing is essential for me and usually even after I've got a complete first draft that I'm happy with, I'll still go through four to five rounds of editing. Um, and during those rounds, I will trash you know, half to two thirds of the book and rewrite from scratch. I think honestly, editing is the most important part of my process. I uh, Even when I've got this very tightly plotted book, I'm going to write it really fast and then see what worked and what didn't because once it's actually on the page you can see the pacing more clearly and you can see the interactions between different plot lines more clearly and you're only going to be able to fix them in some very intensive editing rounds right so one thing i want to do when i get uh, authors onto interviews i because this is something i just nerd out about on my own is ask about what kind of hardware they use what kind of software they use what is their writing setup basically so if I could ask you, where do you normally write and what are you using to write? Okay, so I write in my office, my office being the spare room um, at the front of my house, um, using a reasonably old PC. I write exclusively on Scrivener these days. Um, actually, no, that's a lie. I write for myself on Scrivener, but when I get edits back, that's usually in Word. You know, Word seems to be the most universally accepted system of uh, adding comments and markups so unfortunately I'm stuck with Word for, for professional edits um, but other tools that I have um, Dropbox I keep all my Scrivener work in a single Dropbox because I've lost files over and over and Dropbox will back up every individual scene you write in a separate location and save the last 10 revisions of every scene so if you ever lost a single word to um, to a computer crash or hard drive failure, just get Dropbox and Scrivener and you'll be golden. Besides that, I've got a corkboard to my right. I'm sitting right here as we speak, uh, where I have um, sticky notes and plot structures all uh, wiggling all over the place, you know, lines and bits of string and thumbtack, so it looks like a bit of a, um, a beautiful mind. Oh, you have string as well? Yes. You have string on the corkboard as well? Yeah, I've got some string up here linking some different uh, post-it notes together. That's great. Along with receipts <laughs> and stuff. And I also use a bullet journal um, to track general ideas that come to me randomly. So uh, a daily bullet journal, but just throw down. Like if an idea for a scene comes to me suddenly at you know 11 o'clock at night, that will go in there and I'll immediately have it the next day. And I also use that to track general progress, including word counts, ticking off scenes, um, where I am with my synopsis, my outlines, etc. So in terms of tools, I'm using a hybrid of computer and paper. Um, and my organization is also both spread over Google Sheets and paper up on the pinboard. Google Sheets, can you tell me more about how you use um, spreadsheets? Yeah, uh, so I'll just pull one up now so I can 
look at it while we're talking. So I use my spreadsheets for a whole bunch of different stuff. I usually have a single Google Sheet per um, book. And so here, the one I'm looking at at the moment for one project, I've got a tab where I've got this big um, layout of all my characters and their relationships in the military. So Google Sheets has really easy um, tools for you know, throwing down shapes and links between shapes. You can build these sort of spreadsheets and flowcharts of characters or you know world building relationships between different cities and economies, whatever you need to do. Um, I've also got a massive ongoing timeline tracker for this project. So this is something I'm actually using on a rewrite. This is, I think, the sixth rewrite of this book. And what I do is after I've written the draft, I go through and I reread scene by scene and I make notes for every character and for every major plot thread scene by scene as to what's developed in that scene. And then I can go back into this sheet and easily track when a particular character is following a, a thread or how long it's been since we checked in on a particular plot line. So that's how I keep everything nicely paced. And I also have um, a big three act structure workout for this particular book. So that's all in Google Sheets, tracking each act, uh, each major beat, uh, what the character's needs are in each scene, what uh, personal or emotional aspect changes in each scene. So this is all, it sounds really mechanical, but for me, it's necessary to keep all this stuff uh, organized in my head. And having it on Google Sheets is great because I work both here and I also work on my laptop a lot when I'm traveling around, like I ride on the train or the bus. So being able to always have that stuff at hand is really useful. So you use Google Sheets as your sort of master, for your master outlines, is that right? Yeah, essentially. Um, I have this sort of, again, every time I describe this, it sounds like it's really mechanical, but I have this empty three-act structure document that I've built. And when I'm working on a book, I, I pretty much always grab out this, this uh, copy-paste three-act structure and I create a new sheet for it and I try and see how my plotline fits in to that structure. And being able to swap it back and forth between different books and different projects is really useful because I can see, well, why is this book working here where this book isn't at this particular point in time? And so having comparable Google Sheets documents to flip back and forth, I can see, oh, this book worked because I paid attention to this character's need and how it was, uh, how the story was pivoting on this need at this point. In this story, I forgot to do that or I skipped over it. So direct comparison and having these templates, for me, it doesn't suck the life out of the story. It helps me figure out why the life isn't in a story at a particular point. What time of day do you generally write? Do you prefer the morning or do you write in any time of day? Do you have a preference? Um, this is going to be a little unfair because at the moment I'm writing full time. This is not a matter of me making incredible amounts of money from my books. Uh, I'm just between right. jobs at the moment. So I'm usually up and writing by about nine o'clock and I usually try and wrap up my daily writing by about three, four, but on bad days, I'll go through to six, seven o'clock. So what are you terming a bad day there? Um, oh, look, some days I start writing at nine o'clock and I've got my daily word count done by 12. And other days, just nothing's coming out. I'm roadblocked on scenes or um, I'll start smashing out words, but then I'll 
step back and look at it a bit more clearly and realize I've uh, gone off on a tangent and they're not really applicable. So I've got to scrap them and start again. So um, I always work basically to a word count each day if I'm writing fresh or a page count if I'm editing. And so I'll go until that count is met or until I'm asleep. What's your daily work count? When I'm writing fresh, I'm trying to do 4,000 words a day. And if I'm editing, I'm trying to do um, the equivalent of about 16,000 a day. And uh, I guess your pace might depend on how difficult the scenes you're working on are, etc. Yeah, absolutely. And it's common to get completely blocked on certain scenes. And when that happens, what I usually do is just switch to a different book. So at the moment, I'm working on four books, not all at the same point in the process. Like one's in editing, one's in um, one's into the proof reading stages, one is um, almost untouched. But if I ever get stuck on one and a scene's just not working, I flip immediately to a different project and work on that for a couple of hours. And by the time I'm done, the answer has usually come to me. So having multiple projects on the go is actually a really effective tool for cutting out that sort of the roadblock and the procrastination over not having the right idea at the right time. So I gather the Ragged Blade has an interesting publishing history. Yeah, the Ragged Blade came together. um, It was a bit of a weird process, a bit of a lucky process, but I think every book that's ever been published has a bit of a lucky process. It started off as a self-pub novel back in around 2011 and it was originally called Century of Sand. So I tried to get an agent and a publisher for it for a couple of years and I had no luck and Kindle was just taking off. So I thought, why not? Um, so I self-pubbed it. I wrote the sequel and self-published that. And the final book in the trilogy was just coming together when a publisher called Parvis Press uh, opened up for submissions. They did that on Reddit, which was a bit of an unusual way to do it, but I thought, why not? And I chucked them my first book. And they read Century of Sand, and they enjoyed it, but they said it wasn't quite there yet. And also, because it was self-published, I had already stolen a big chunk of their market, which is a fairly common reason for most major publishers to not pick up self-pub work. I mean, the more successful your self-pub book has been, that's more and more readers that aren't going to buy it a second time. So Parvis Press, you know, they hesitated. They said, you know, thanks, but no thanks, but we'll keep in touch because we like what you're doing. And it was another year before I sent in a totally different project, a sci-fi novel. And they read that and they said, hey, this is this is actually pretty good. And we had a bit of a chat about Century of Sand. And they said, look, if you can bring Century of Sand up to the same level as this new book seeing as there were almost seven years in between the books, uh, the original writing of the books. Uh, they said there's a big leap in quality. If you can do that for us, then I think we can make a deal. And they were especially enticed by the fact that uh, I had written Century of Sand 1, 2, and 3. Even though they were all in quite rough shape, having that foundation there was really important for them. You know, They knew they could work from something. They wouldn't be stuck in a George R. R. Martin type situation. So we signed, uh, they took all three books and yeah, we're still working through book two at the moment. We're in the very, very final stages of like moving commas around. 
So that should be out in July and then book three, hopefully by late next year. That's super interesting. Uh, congratulations again on, on your self pub being picked up like oh, that. Cheers. Um, so you mentioned that the sequel had already been self-published. So did you have to pull everything down at that point? Yeah, everything came down, uh, deleting all records of it, basically. We, we essentially had to wipe it from the internet's collective history. Uh, not just so we could have a fresh start, but also there's so much that goes into uh, algorithms, um, search terms. Uh, this is actually way beyond me. I'm not one for the technical side of promotion and publishing. But I do know there's a lot of crossover chatter when you're trying to market a, a new book. And if it in any way overlaps with the old book, then you're going to be getting people being redirected to pages of books that no longer exist. So, yeah, we had to wipe it all clean with about a year uh, buffer between then and the launch of the, the rebrand. And that was easy in some places. So we did that on Amazon, no problem. And literally impossible in other places. So, for example, Goodreads refuses to remove listings for books forever. Whatever you put on Goodreads will be there for the rest of your life. So, yes, in some places we literally couldn't scrape that original book away. Did you reach out to any of your original readers at all or, or did you hear from them um, in any way and get to talk about the update to the book? I did. So I keep a mailing list. It's not huge, but... The people who are on the mailing list generally do really enjoy my work. So I spoke to them. I promoted uh, the Ragged Blade via the mailing list. And I reached out to a lot of my old readers and said, hey, if you'd like a copy of the new one uh, for free, because you've already read, you've paid for the old one. I don't want to charge you twice. I'll get you a copy of the new one. Just drop me a review if you enjoy it. And that helped a lot. So most of my readers were really appreciative of the fact that I was refining and updating a story for them that they'd already enjoyed. Um, I didn't expect that. I thought some might be a little frustrated at me. I was afraid of being perceived as nickel and diming them, you know, charging twice for the same story. But by the time we'd finished The Ragged Blade, it was so different. Like it's probably 80 to 90% new book. So everyone was actually really happy to go through it a second time and discover what had changed and the new directions I'd taken their characters. Yeah, I think that's something um, really cool about uh, the way that authors can connect with their audiences directly these days. That's that's really good of you to get in touch with them. And I think it must have been an interesting reading experience for them. Yeah, I, I haven't gotten any complaints about uh, the changes I made. So that was really positive. Most of the feedback I got was, oh, I'm so glad you fixed this section. Or I'm so glad you cut this section because these just weren't working for me. You know, the, the little sort of pebbles in the shoe along the way, the things that made a, a pretty good story just a little bit frustrating, we stripped them out. We streamlined a lot of stuff and we put in more of the things that people told me they loved. So being afforded that opportunity was amazing. And um, I'm really appreciative to my publishers for letting me take that shot. What's the hardest part of writing for you? Um... Straight up, the hardest part of writing is maintaining your love of a story over such an extended period. I mean, there are very few creative disciplines where you have to be in love with a project for years. Um, and that stretches on even worse once you get into traditional publishing. So I was really used to the self-publishing cycle, which is I wrote a book, 
I proof it. I test it once or maybe twice, like with different groups of readers. I make another round of edits and it's done. And so now having to really be in love with a story for that process, plus the usually two years it takes working with a traditional publisher to get a book out, that's been really hard for me. And I think if I hadn't fallen in love with the self-publishing process first, that might have been easier. But now having to reread and rework a story for five, six, seven years at a time, it's really tough. And by the end, you really don't like the story you're working on. You just, you're glad to see it go. Um, I suppose if you've got kids, it, it must be sort of like the last two or three years before your, your teenager finally moves out. You know, they graduated and they've got their job, but they're still stuck in your spare room eating all your food. You love them, you're proud of them, but you just want them to go. And so maintaining that, um, that interest in a project has been really tough for me. I was going to compare it to the initial sort of spark of a romance and then what may turn into sort of a marriage and, uh, you know, every day it has to turn into a kind of everyday natural love, uh, you know, long term, something like that. Yeah, no, I, I see that comparison. I, the difference is that eventually your book is going to be done. It's going to be out the door and it's going to be in readers' hands. So you can see the end coming. You just wish somebody would either make that date arrive faster or take the book out of your hands and do the work for you so you didn't have to look at it anymore. Have you found yourself falling out of love with the story you're working on or have you needed a break from it or anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to preface this by saying I love all my books and I'm proud of all the stuff I've done. Even <laughs> All your children. Yeah. And now look, I've written some stories looking back and I'm like, oh, that wasn't so great. You know, there's definite improvements to be made there, but I can see where I was at the time and what I was trying to achieve, and I'm proud of that. But I don't think anyone can really love a book on the 20th reread, but that's what you have to do when you're doing line edits for a traditional publisher. And I really was not used to that that level of intensity. So um, I've got The Ragged Blade 2 coming out in a couple of months, and I don't want to ever see it again. I've gone through it so many times, moving commas left and right between words and i just i'm sick of it i really hope everybody else enjoys it because i'm really proud of it but i'm <laughs> once it's done I'm, I'm just moving on to book three and never looking back so your solution to uh to this um this falling out of love problem is is it just to persevere with it and keep going as and finish it as soon as you can in a way yeah perseverance is completely necessary taking breaks when you can is necessary. That's why I write multiple projects at one time. So if, if, if one is ever really just stressing me out or not giving me what I need, then I can, um, I can take a small break from it and still feel like I'm being creative. A lot of it is just learning to put your head down and get the work done. Um, I think if you want to treat writing as a professional career, then you have to be willing to treat it like a job. And sometimes you're not going to enjoy your job, uh, but you, you sit there anyway and you set your targets and and you get it done, even if by the end of the day you're drained and miserable. Because there are always days coming when you're going to feel that just that joy of creation and the energy and just that, you know, that, that feeling when you sit down and the hands are on the keyboard and the story just happens. You know that if you fight through those really frustrating days, those other days will be there waiting. So here's a bit of a different question. Um, if you could sit down with one of your favorite authors... Uh, let's say for dinner and a chat 
who would it be and what would you want to talk about? This is a tough one because I've got so many favorite authors and I find it really hard to pick one, but I've been in love with the writing of Gene Wolfe for years and years now. And unfortunately he passed only a couple of years ago and I never got a chance to, to meet him or chat with him at a con or anything. Um, if I had, I would have loved to talk to him about how he sees his plot structures and how he sees his characters. Cause he works with such complex stories um, and Gene Wolfe finds amazing metaphors, these sometimes very uh, literary and thematic stories, and he tells them through his characters in incredibly complex ways. And it always feels like he's juggling 20 balls at once, doing it really expertly. Um, and you never know where the balls are at any one time, but you have this complete confidence in him that they're always going to land and, and be delivered back into that, that loop. And I just don't understand how anyone could pull that off. How you can keep so much story and theme and character in your head at once and make everything still satisfying. So I'd love to sit down with him and pour over big plot outlines and story structures and pages and pages of research. Um, I think he had possibly one of the most incredible minds in sci-fi and fantasy literature and yeah, it's such an absolute tragedy that he's no longer with us. Uh, I'm right there with you. Um, I think it's so interesting to... I mean, one of the main themes of this podcast is trying to peel back the curtain and, and get into the mechanics and uh, technical aspects of writing. And um, for a master, I, I, I also really like Gene Wolfe. Um, to to sort of see behind the scenes, to see into the, the studio of a master like that would be really, really fascinating. So who's your favourite author then that you would have for dinner and ask the question? Hmm, I wasn't prepared for the question to be fair. Ah, on me. the tables have been turned. I would, I would actually really be interested in picking Gene Wolfe's brain for sure. Oh, brilliant. Um, maybe Ursula Le Guin as well. Mm -hmm. There's a few. I'd have to think about that as well. I wasn't ready <laughs> to, <laughs> to answer the question myself. <laughs> So what to you is the ultimate purpose of your storytelling um, or, or the function of it? Is it for you? Is it is it entertainment? Is it is it um, aesthetic value or is it is do you try for deeper resonance in any way? Like what at what level do you pitch your your books at? I hopefully can pitch my books at multiple levels. I want my books to be entertaining. You know, I write fantasy and science fiction and horror, and they're hopefully all you know, full of conflict and drama and explosions and, and battles and good sort of meaty genre fiction. But underneath that, I'm trying, I do honestly try and keep um, some fairly weighty themes as the structure for every book I do. Um, and I, I think that honestly, every novel has a deeper theme if you squint hard enough. Um, and I think that, honestly, if you want a novel to resonate in any way, it has to have some sort of um, deeper artistic intention behind it, something that really does resonate with the audience. Um, I, I sometimes chat with people about this, about whether their writing has any deeper theme behind it, and, and they say, you can write a, a good action movie without theme, and then we start talking about action movies, and I'll still find that the, the the dumbest 
all the most uh, popular action films they talk about still have something behind them. You know, Terminator 2 is my favourite action film, and it's a deep story about fatherhood and the length we'll go to for our children. Um, and that's why I think it, it still works for me after so 20 years or so. So even when I'm doing fantasy and sci-fi and unpacking it with you know, good, honest genre tropes, there's always something underneath that I want to explore. And I think it's important to try and have that secondary level there. Um, I'm one of those people who thinks that all art is inherently political and that most of the time when people try and omit politics or theme, they're betraying their interest in a just in a different political view or thematic side. So I prefer to lean into that and really find a way to weave it into the bones of the story. Mm -hmm. I think I agree with you in that um, theme and politics in storytelling is, is somewhat inevitable, whether, whether it's there by intent or not might be another thing. But I, I agree with you that when you read the story, because there are so many ways to read and interpret a story, you can pull things out that, weren't even designed into the thing um even in even in fairly uh shallow genre pieces for sure yeah I, um at what point in the writing process does does a theme develop I, is it there for you right at the beginning and then you work it into the story or is it something that arises naturally from your discovery process uh the latter it arises naturally again this is sort of not being able to see the shape of the story until you've written you know, a, a large portion of it, you can step back and actually look at the way your characters are naturally growing and the challenges they're facing. And then you can find quite organic ways in which those characters' challenges and their own motivations are tying to deeper messages. So uh, Century of Sand, which then became The Ragged Blade, it's not an overtly political novel. It's not stuck on the wrapper. But the further I got into writing the story, I realized it was really largely a book about um, the process and the ongoing damage of white colonization. I, you can't write a story about a white hero running off into what he has been told are the, the savage, untamed lands on the borders of his kingdom and not examine the repercussions of what happens when a, uh, a militarily you know, superior civilization rolls through a peaceful, welcoming civilization and strips their their lands for resources. And so I only saw that once I was further into the process. Once I saw it there, I realized it was really inevitable that I had to explore these themes and make them inherent to the characters' journeys and their understandings. So, yeah, I think if you begin a story with the theme first and foremost, then it's a bit more difficult to make it appear naturally. Um, I think sometimes when people talk about stories where the theme is too heavy-handed or too blunt, those are stories often where the theme was the first thing that came to mind as opposed to an organic evolution. But I could be completely wrong on that count. I prefer to let it grow. And once I've seen it growing, then I can go back and revise and really bring it to the forefront. So, of course, well, after people read a book, um, different people take different things from it. Uh, is there anything that would give you great pleasure to know that a reader sort of was left with after reading one of your books, like an image or an idea or something like that? Like, how would you, what would you like to leave them with after 
after they've read one. Oh, <laughs> of course, um, you know, the, the thing I'm going to say is I just hope that they enjoy the story. You know, if, if a reader finishes the book and they feel like they've been taken on a, a bit of a journey, if they've been able to step outside their lives for a couple hours, and that's uh, very satisfying to me. But I have had people tell me that they, they've read some of my works and gone, oh, you know, I, I didn't consider this particular point. Or um, somebody did message me to say, after reading The Ragged Blade, that said, wow, I've, you know, I read through the story, which is primarily about um, a father and daughter on this long journey. And they said, I read it and I thought about stuff that I've done with my own parents. And suddenly a lot of the ways they acted towards me, they're now in a new context. I've, you know, I've gone back and re-examined a relationship. And that was really powerful. I didn't intend to do that. But, you know, if if my writing can engage with people on a deeper level, on a more personal level, then that's incredibly satisfying. Um, well, thanks very much for joining me today, Christopher. I think I've run through all my questions. Uh, I mean, one other thing to ask is um, what else have you written? Obviously, The Ragged Blade is available on Amazon, I believe, and... and where else? Uh, the Ragged Blade is available pretty much everywhere. So Amazon, Barnes & Noble, iBooks, etc. Um, you can often find it in Barnes & Nobles and indie stores around the US. Um, mm -hmm. I didn't have a, a major distribution deal, so you're not going to find it everywhere, but it's always on, on Amazon and such. Um, otherwise... I'll definitely have a look for it here in the UK. Yeah, if you can, please send me a photo. <laughs> I've gotten a couple photos from, from overseas. But, for example, I've only ever seen it twice in Australia, which mm. was um, even then like that. Is Parvis an American? Parvis are American. They're New York-based. Right. Um, and all their distribution deal was for the US. So I had this sort of very strange situation of being, a, you know, an author on launch day, and I couldn't run down to the shop and find my own books. I already knew. It was no, <laughs> it was nowhere in on the continent, so that was a bit weird. But yeah, Amazon always has my books. Um, besides the Ragged Blade, I've also written a uh, a hot and going horror series called Rust. I've written four Rust. books out of the projected five. I'm trying to plot book five at the moment, and it's giving me a lot of grief. So hopefully, I can get that one done in the the not too distant future. And I've also got some uh, some short stories and some novellas on Kindle and iBooks and Kobo as well, um, which I'm really proud of. So a couple science fiction, um, one fantasy short, which I think you'd love, called Pan, which is a mashup oh, yeah. mashup of Peter Pan legend and Greek mythology, uh, which I had such a good time writing. So. If you check it out, I'm sure you'll enjoy reading it as well. And yeah, that's about it for where you can find my stuff. Um, eventually, I'm going to try and do the responsible author thing and set up some sort of online store on my own website so people can buy direct. But it's it's right. one more thing to do. And you know that we never have enough time. That's great, though. I love that besides The Ragged Blade, you have a lot of work available out there um when i get into a new author I, it's always good to see that there's a whole you know backlog of stuff to dig my teeth into um i think these days authors i need to be promoting themselves and making work available in multiple formats on multiple channels because we can't predict where readers are coming from what they have accessible to them whether they're reading paperback or ebook or on their phones and people are going to read in the method that they is most comfortable to them on the device they have at hand. 
So the more stuff we can provide, uh, the better it is for the reader and the better for us. So, yeah, I've got my novels, I've got short stories, I've got novellas, and I'm seeing a lot of traditionally published authors going the same way. Right. And uh, where can people find you online? So I am at Ruskin, that's R-U-Z-K-I-N, on Twitter, and Ruskin.com is my main website where you can find me, lists of all my books and such, and a very irregularly updated blog. And if anyone wants to get in contact, my email is ruskin at gmail.com. Great. I actually just thought of one final question yeah, sure. uh, to finish the podcast with. Um, so I'm hoping that um, among the listeners of this podcast will be will be uh, wannabe writers, would-be writers, or um, starting writers, or maybe even, you know, uh, professional ongoing writers. Um, what is your biggest piece of advice for authors to leave them with? Uh, biggest piece of advice for authors? Um, you've probably seen this graph um floating around about how your artistic skill grows at a different rate to your understanding of what makes good art. So it's, it's this little graph that's made usually for you know, illustrators and it shows that your understanding of good of what makes good art grows ahead of your own skill. So you get more and more dissatisfied with your own work. And then the quality of your work catches up and you're like, oh, wow, I'm a great artist. I'm a great writer. And then they invert again. And so you're always feeling like you're inadequate. Um, the more you read or the more you draw, or the more you look at art, the less content with your own work you feel. And it's really easy, especially as an early stage writer, to get caught in that trap of seeing the quality of your work not catching up to your perception of what makes good work. And I hit that trap myself uh, probably around my third book. And I was really discouraged and I was, I was thinking of tossing it all in. So the main piece of advice I've got to give is in your early stages of writing, focus on throwing out as much work as you can. Don't focus on making the perfect book because your perception of what the perfect book is, is it's at a different level to what you can actually produce at the time. Instead, you only improve just by making the work faster, faster, faster. So... Yeah, don't try and write the perfect American novel. It's not going to happen first time. Any stories you've heard to the contrary of debut authors making these incredible life-changing stories, nine times out of ten, they're manufactured and they're nonsense. You improve by doing the work. So don't attach yourself to any one story. Just create as much as you can, read as much as you can, and then by the time you've probably put out you know, two or three novels worth of work, your perception of what makes a good story and your own abilities will probably have started to catch up and you can actually start being satisfied with your own work and then you can start making the dream novel, the story that you've been hanging on to for all those years and it'll satisfy you. Yeah, work through that middle stage just by creating a volume of work and then hopefully you'll, you know, you'll hit that happy point and you can start making really good art that you'll love for years to come. Great. Thanks very much for joining me today, Christopher. Thank you for having me on. And uh, just again, you can be found uh, at R-U-Z-K-I-N. That's right, Ruskin. R-U-Z-K-I-N, everywhere. (laughs) And don't forget, you can find the podcast at Pay No Podcast on Instagram, Twitter, and you can contact us 
at paynopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for joining me today, Christopher. We'll end it there and uh, see you guys next time.